Hey everyone, I'm Janet B from New Jersey, recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Um, welcome to all the newcomers. So to reiterate, what we usually do at this chapter is at this meeting is we go through a chapter and starting either Thursday or next week, we're gonna be back at the beginning of the book. We finished up all the chapters. Last week we did Dr. Bob's Nightmare. And I just wanted to spend a little time on a story that is just um, has been so helpful to so many of us. It's the story acceptance was the answer on page 407. I believe in the third edition and earlier it was called Dr. Alcoholic Addict. So, but in the fourth edition, it's called acceptance was the answer because he talks a lot about acceptance. So I'm just going to highlight what I, some things that stood out to me as helpful, and hopefully they will be to you as well. Um, on page 407, he says what I think a lot of us say before we recover, right? If you had my problems, you drink too. And isn't that what I used to do, what we used to do, right? Um, I'm binging because. And there was always a fill in the blank because usually it's our lousy parents, but sometimes it's our lousy spouses or our lousy kids. Um, it's always a lousy something that we got a bad break. And what we learn in recovery is that we never binged or were um, non-abstinent because of anything else. Page 120 makes it clear that if we are not abstinent, it's because there's something wrong with my spiritual condition, not my parents, my husband's or my kid's spiritual condition with mine. And so he starts, you know, he's just kind of feeling like a victim and he sets up his story so beautifully on page 408. He talks about um, his relationship with his wife, which is key in this story. And he said, um, she cried and went to bed. That was the only answer to problems that she had left. I cried a bit and then mixed myself another drink. Today, we don't have to live like that anymore. So he sets up the story from despair to hope. And really that's how all our stories are. We have hope because there is a God who, again, we can all choose our own, our own conception of God and mine may be a little unorthodox for a nice Christian woman. I believe God created the world in six days, took a day off to rest, and then said, I don't think I'm gonna spend the rest of eternity watching Netflix. Instead, I'm gonna launch search and rescue missions for the addicts all over the planet. And that's what he did. Um, so because of that, we can have hope because there's a God who's interested in every single one of us. Um, so for a few pages, he just talks about his illness, the things he did in his illness, which of course, if we're working with a newcomer, we always want to do that, right? We want to set up an identification. We want to talk about the like horrible things we did. Sometimes we want to throw in like something funny that we did with, you know, food, but that really was horrible, but kind of humorous looking back on it. Um, we want to create an identification with the person. And that's what he, that's what he does. On page 411, 
he talks about, he was addicted to alcohol and pills. And he says, I wasn't able to quit chemicals as long as they were in the house. Um, so he got them all out of the house. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting because we all know we could get everything out of the house, but there's always a bakery or a grocery store across the street or down the block or just a short car ride away. But it shows willingness. Um, a lot of times if I'm talking to a newcomer and they say, okay, I'm ready to start. And I say, okay, do you have binge food in your house? And they say, yes. Like, okay, I'll stay on the phone with you while you gather it all up and bring it to the garbage can, not in your kitchen, you know, on the street, because it shows willingness, right? Like we have to, willingness is demonstrable. We, you know, it shows by what we do. So, you know, he says, okay, I need to get it out of the house and getting it out shows willingness. And page 413, though, he says he believed, he's, he's saying, if I could just control the external environment, the internal environment would then become comfortable. Well, we all have learned that that's not true, right? For one, we can't control our external environment. If any of you doubt it, you can um, spend 10 minutes with a teenager or a two-year-old. We can't control or our external environment. Or if you ask Melissa and I, if we could control it, there would be no snow up in New York or New Jersey. No snow. Unfortunately, you know, Maybe tomorrow we can put away the winter coats, but yesterday we couldn't. Can't control the external environments. Um, so what do we do if we can't control our external environment? What do we do? We have to change our internal environment. How? We have to become more tolerant. And tolerant doesn't just mean liking people who are different race or religion. It means we're able to put up with things that we don't like. I don't like the cold, but I'm tolerant of it and realize I'm not a victim. If I hate it that much, I can move back to Florida where I came from. Um, so again, we can always change our internal environment. And I can be grateful that I'm only in New Jersey and not where Trisha is up in New Hampshire, where it's like even colder. Um, so page 414, he talks about how his life is better. And he tells kind of the, the secret or the formula in a simple sentence. He says, life keeps getting simpler and easier as we try to reverse my old idea by taking care of the internal environment via the 12 steps and letting the external environment take care of itself how do we reverse our old ideas and take care of the internal environment? Well, one, another big way, aside from increasing our tolerance, we resolve our resentments and our fears and we clean up our harms to others. That's how I clean up my internal environment. I get rid of my resentments and my fears. And if I've caused any harm to others, I fix them. So if you want how to resolve resentments, fears, we go into that in great detail when we're on chapter five of this big book. So we'll be there in about six weeks or so. 
Um, but that's how we clean our internal environment. And so then he's telling his story of how he starts to get better. And he actually was committed to, to a hospital, um, which was quite a blow to his ego because he was a doctor. And I believe he was at the same hospital where he was a doctor, he was committed. So there he is, and he sees a psychiatrist there. And the psychiatrist says, I think you should go to AA. And he said, I, I could tell it would really make him happy if I agreed. So for no better reason than to make him happy, I agreed. Well, now me, you know, if I didn't keep reading, I would have thought, well, this guy's going to fail. He didn't go because he hit bottom. He didn't go because he knew he needed it. He did it just to like people please his doctor. But now I realize um, it says something about me, right? My, my cynical heart that still needs changing. But it says a lot more about God, that God meets us where we are that even if the person's motives aren't right, God says, okay, they took a baby step. And if we think about that, isn't that the last line of the doctor's opinion? Though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. So I think God, you know, when he's launching his search and rescue missions and hoping that, you know, we just, we just present ourselves before him so he can help us. He doesn't wait till we present ourselves all cleaned up or even all 100% gung-ho. He takes scoffers. He takes people pleasers. We can go to him just as we are and he'll work with what we have. But um, here are the star of the story. He was willing. He didn't have completely good mode, but he was willing. And he says, against my better judgment, I went to a meeting with him that night and a strange thing began to happen. Something started, something started changing. And finally, he, he kept going to the meetings. Um, and finally, he was a little bit better and he was discharged from the hospital. And he said he and his wife kept going to meetings themselves. And he said, um, I felt sure they weren't doing anything for me, but they sure were helping my wife. He says, we sat in the back and talked only to each other. It was precisely a year before I spoke at an AA meeting. So again, cynical me would say, this guy's never going to get better. First, he goes just to people please his doctor. Then when he goes, he's just sitting in the back chit chatting with his wife for a whole friggin' year. He could have recovered five times over during that year. Well, this is one of those rare times when I say that tongue in cheek, where I say it's a good thing that I'm not God because God certainly um, didn't hold hold him to as high a standard as I would have. God says he's there. And apparently God's not always in the hurry that I am. He was there. Um, and so there he is. And, you know, he hears people saying, I'm a success today if I don't drink today. 
And then he thought, what a ridiculous thing to brag about. I've got a thousand things to do before I can brag about not taking a drink. And he says, today, there's absolutely nothing in the world more important to me than my keeping this alcoholic, meaning himself, sober. Not taking a drink is by far the most important thing I do each day. And I thought about it. And I thought about um, one of my kids' bedrooms, which when they come home from college within three days, you wouldn't know there was a floor um, because there's stuff all over. And there's, you know, food plates with empty food and all sorts of stuff. And that would tend to get me a little um, angry. And at some point I realized, you know, resentment is deadly for me. So I can either get angry and get in a battle or I can just accept it. Um, again, if it got to the point where, you know, there were small you know, creatures crawling around, that might be different. But short of that, the most important thing is me staying abstinent. So if me getting in a battle with one of my children over their room every day is going to lead to me being in a perpetual state of resentment, no, I don't get into that battle. And you know what? They leave for college and I walk into the clean room and I'd rather they were here with the messy room most of the time. So, um, so that's what he learned that, you know, avoiding the situations that are a lot of things that we think are so important. Is that really the hill I want to die on? Is it really the hill I want to lose my abstinence over? And so there he goes, he starts working the steps and then we get to page 417 where he just realized, he said, I stopped living in the problem and began living in the answer. And then the problem went away. From that moment on, I have not had a single compulsion to drink. Okay, what does it mean to live in the answer? Well, in our book, it says, either God is everything or else he's nothing. And so that means really aligning our will with God's will and then trying to do what we think he wants. When we first come around, you know, once we do that, he wants us to clean up our past. Once we clean up our past, he wants us to continue cleaning up each 24 hours, praying and meditating so that we can get closer to him. See, he doesn't just save us. He saves us to have a relationship with him, right? The God who flung the stars, launched this like little rowboat or whatever to rescue me, brought me to dry land, and then wants me to spend the rest of my life cultivating this relationship. So we do that and then we help others, right? We're, we're, the one, we're on the rowboat going out for the lost people and helping in the search and rescue missions. And then the, one of the famous um, paragraphs in the big book on page 417, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. Cynthia, could you read that please? Yes. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. 
When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. Okay, there's so much stuff in that paragraph. So first he's saying... Um, acceptance is the answer to all my problems. And I say, what? Like, that's kind of hard to swallow. So just, um, so what he's saying is, if I'm upset, if I'm disturbed, it's because I find something unacceptable. It shouldn't be like that. And who else was like that? That was Bill Wilson was like that, right? On page 11, um, Bill Wilson saying, the wars which had been fought, the burnings and chicanery, you know, made me sick. I honestly doubted whether on balance the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I'd seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. Um, the brotherhood of man, a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss. So what's he saying there, right? Um, there's saying here, when we're disturbed, whether it's about my kids not cleaning their room or a war across the ocean, it's because um, I think if I were God, I wouldn't allow it. If I were God, I would stop this war instantly. If I were God, I would make sure, you know, my kids clean their rooms. And what a first step teaches us is that when we try to be God, when we try to, we can't even run our own lives. And yet we're trying to figure out how the rest of the universe can be run. And it's saying, no, I have to accept it, that God knows what he's doing. And I may want something or someone changed right now, but for whatever reason, God isn't allowing it. And it says, until we accept that, we can't be, we're not going to be happy. So right now, you know, I raised my kids to go to church right now. Um, I know one of them isn't going to church, isn't interested in going to church. And, you know, for a while I thought, okay, if I'm a good Christian mother, I have to be like upset about it and worried about it. And, you know, just like weep and wail to God about it. And then I realized like, no, no, I accept that like God's got his plan for them, for their lives. And I accept it. I accept his timing. My child may start going to church next week, next year or never. It's out of my hands. And I have to tell you, I have peace. I used to every Sunday night. So it's like, so did you go to church today? I don't ask them anymore. And not because I'm biting my tongue. At first I was, but now because I don't think to ask them. So I think we have to accept life on life's terms. And what does it tell us to concentrate on? Not on what needs to be changed in the world, 
but what needs to be changed in me and my attitude, right? And it um, reminds me of the formula in chapter five that we're in the world to play the role that God assigns just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? That's it. So I just have to, God, what's your role for me right now? And if I'm doing that, you know, that's, that's what matters. Um, Cynthia, you want to read the next one, please? The one that starts with Shakespeare. Yes. Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. He forgot to mention that I was the chief critic. I was always able to see the flaw in every person, every situation. And I will always was always glad to point it out because I knew you wanted perfection just as I did. AA and acceptance have taught me that there is a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us. That we are we're all that we are all children of God and we each have a right to be here. When I complain about me or about you, I am complaining about God's handiwork. I am saying that I know better than God. Okay, so what this chapter, this paragraph really says to me is we need to watch out for pride. Whenever I'm complaining, this person isn't better. This person should be doing that. Um, I'm saying I know how they should be and what the timetable is. And why isn't God healing that person? You know, why isn't that person stepping up? And then I remember I was just talking to someone today. Um, I used to have a big fear, a terror, really, that when my kids were older, um, once they were 18, they would want nothing to do with me. So I spent a lot of their years, their growing up years, parenting them out of that fear. So sometimes I was like overly harsh or sometimes I would let them get away with things, but it affected my parenting because I had that fear. And what I saw is that I made an idol out of them. Um, now I was talking and I realized that fear and idolatry is totally gone. Now it's like not even on my radar to care what they think about me. But if someone came to me and said, yeah, I'm having this problem with my kids. You know, I'm so concerned with what they think. And if I were to say, oh, just get over it, that's really wrong. It took me, oh gosh, 15 years until God removed it. 15 years of working and doing 10 steps and, you know, trying and praying and, you know, trying to figure it out until one day. Um, it was actually my therapist who said to me, you know, when you're worried about what your kids think about you, you've made an idol out of them. And then it just all clicked for me. And I say, why didn't God put that therapist in my life 15 years ago? My kids and I would have had, and my husband would have had an easier time of it. I don't know. I don't know why it took God. So, you know, God took his time on that. And so I have to remember that when I'm talking to someone else and they're not progressing at the pace I think they should be progressing at. Now, that's not to say that um, it excuses someone not doing the work, 
right? It's like if a sponsor tells you make three phone calls a day and you say, well, I'm only making one. Well, you know, that's not it. But, but if we're working really hard, um, you know, some, some defects take longer to be rid of than others. He also says he was the chief critic and he thought people would be glad to hear their defects pointed out so they could get better at it. A lot of us are really good at that, right? At seeing other people's flaws. And sometimes we think, oh, that's a gift. I can hone in on what other people are doing wrong. It's not a gift. Um, the actual spiritual gift is called guilelessness. And guilelessness means that if someone's doing something and we're not sure if they're doing it with a good motive or a bad motive, love demands that we assume that they're doing it with a good motive. So some people have that beautiful gift of being able to see the good in other people all the time. And that's a gift I know that I need um, because it helps us to be useful. People don't want to be around people who are right. People want to be around people who care about them, who see the good in them. So on page um, 418, he says, acceptance has been the answer to my marital problems. It's as though AA had given me a new pair of glasses. I love that because that's exactly without having read this, what I used to say right after my fifth step, I felt like I had a new pair of glasses, like trees look greener. So as we progress through these steps, it's like we're, we're nearsighted and now we're not. We're blind, but now we see, right? Like we, we change, something changes. And what does he say? He says, here's kind of what the new glasses are like, that instead of continuing to see um, what was bad about his life, his wife, he focused on what was good about his wife. And suddenly she seemed to be better. And it works the other way too, right? He said back in the illness, when he was drinking, he used to look at what was wrong with his wife and her faults grew and grew. So by willpower, we can focus on the good. That's like a formula for multiplying the good in others. Look at the good things. So I'll tell you about um, my son. He came, he's 20. He came home for spring break the other day. And um, I asked him last night, can you please unload the dishwasher? And he said, sure. And I woke up this morning and it was not unloaded. And the other night we were driving somewhere and I asked him something. He's like, I'm in the middle of doing something. So let me tell you something else about my son. Yesterday, when he came home out of the blue, he said, um, mom, I want to apologize for when I was 15, when I said, and he said something I said, he said, I didn't mean it. Um, and then my son also is super nice to his elderly grandmother. And my son also, when I said, you're, you're really, You've, you're growing into like a wonderful young man. And he said, it's because of how, you know, you raised me. Same son, right? The one who's nice to his grandmother, made amends to me for something he said five years ago. And the one who didn't empty the dishwasher and answered me in a cranky voice. Same kid. 
but what do I focus on? Today, I choose to focus on this wonderful young man with a good heart. And the more I focus on it, it's interesting, people become what we project onto them. So not only is my heart and my glasses better, um, but it changes them. It changes them for better or worse, what we focus on in them. So, um, and then it talks about, we can do the same thing with meetings, page 419. He says, I can do the same thing with an AA meeting. The more I focus my mind on its defects, late start, long drunk logs, cigarette smoke, the worse the meeting becomes. But when I try to see what I can add to the meeting rather than what I can get out of it, and when I focus my mind on what's good about it rather than what's wrong with it, the meeting keeps getting better and better. Um, so he says, when I focus on what's good today, I have a good day. And when I focus on what's bad, I have a bad day. So if I focus on a problem, the problem increases. If I focus on the answer, the answer increases. Spends a lot of time talking about focus. What do we focus on? And I saw this beautiful prayer about um, focusing on God. So I'm going to read it to you. And then um, Trisha's is going to put it in the chat. Lord, the more you are on the periphery of my thoughts and feelings, the less self-control and the less love I have. The more you are in the center, vividly before the eyes of my heart and attention, the more I can control myself and love others. Lord, please grab and hold my attention moment by moment so I can live as I should. My focus on God and helping others. And I ask God to help me with that because left to my own devices, my focus is on me. Um, okay, so I'm gonna to flip to page 420 where he says, perhaps the best thing of all for me to remember that my serenity is inversely proportional to my expectations. So yeah, if we don't go around expecting so much, right? We've heard it said that we're pleasantly, um, pleasantly surprised. And I just wanna digress a minute and talk a bit about um, how acceptance and expectations is sometimes used in fourth steps in ways that um, aren't very helpful to us. So sometimes we'll say like, I resent my coworker, my mother, my kids, you know, because they're not doing what I want them to, what I, they're not doing the right thing. And sometimes it may be the right thing. They're not doing what I think it should. And then we say, okay, what's my part? And then sometimes say, well, I expect other people to do the right thing. I expect others to listen to me. Um, I have to accept that that person is just like that. Well, yeah, those are all true statements, but that's not saying anything wrong in me, right? If I say, I think, I expect people to do the right thing all the time. Well, okay, I may, but what is it? You know, that's not my part. So how about, um, I think people should live their lives or change their personalities so that my life will be easier. You see the difference there? Instead of just saying acceptance, expectations, I think she should change her personality 
so my life will be easier. I think he should follow the rules so my life will be easier. And then what are my defects there? Control, entitlement. Um, or if we say, I have to accept that, you know, my relative is just a brat, you know, well, that's different than saying, I think, you know, aunt so-and-so should be different so that my life will be easier. And then again, we see entitled, controlling, playing God. So I would just, you know, caution people in doing your fourth steps to not just say, well, I think people should do the right thing. And that's expectations. Well, okay, why do we expect people to do what we consider the right thing? It's always for me, so my life will be easier, which means I think everyone should make their decisions based on what will make my life easier. And what does our book tell us, chapter five? Selfishness and self-centeredness, that is the root of our illness. Okay, a um, couple quick more things. He says here, um, when my rights try to move in, they can force my serenity level down. I have to discard my rights as well as my expectations by asking myself, how important is it really? How important is it compared to my serenity, my emotional sobriety? So our rights, we have to look at what we think our rights are, our rights to a certain amount of spare time, um, rights to a clean house, um, rights to be treated a, treated a certain way. You know, and then sometimes, unfortunately, like in war times, it might be a right to a person's own life. Um, so we have to just look at what are our rights and how important is it compared to my serenity? Yeah, I have a right to say that my kids should, you know, bring down their dirty dishes and not leave them in their bedroom for three days. I certainly have a right. I pay the mortgage. They don't. Is it going to affect my serenity? Probably. So I don't say anything. And then he talks about living step three at the bottom of page 420. Acceptance is the key to my relationship with God today. I never just sit and do nothing while waiting for him to tell me what to do. Rather, and here's what a third step is, I think in a sentence, I do whatever is in front of me to be done and I leave the results up to him. That's it. We do what we think God's will is. And however it turns out, it's, that's fine. He says, that's God's will for me. And he closes by saying, um, I have to keep my magic magnifying mind on my acceptance and off my expectations for my serenity is directly proportional to my level of acceptance. When I remember this, listen to what he says, I can see I've never had it so good. Thank God for AA. We should feel in life often that we've never had it so good. Yes, now we all have bad days or bad seasons, right? You know, loved ones get sick or die or there's, you know, we lose jobs. So we're not supposed to go around manufacturing, you know, happiness when times are tough. But he's not saying everything's fine. He's saying, when I remember this, when I basically remember that everything I have is a gift from God, um, then we realize we've never had it so good. And then what does he do when he realizes he's never had it so good? He thanks God. So 
what a gift gratitude is. And just like, that is all I have on this chapter. So thank you.